Welcome back to the Guns for Hire podcast. I'm Ali Ibrahimi, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. This is episode eight of our show dedicated to mercenaries. In this episode, we're joined by the international lawyer and pioneer of lawfare, Jason McHugh. During the surreal and heady hours of the Wagner Group mutiny in June this year, Yevgeny Prigozhin and his men crossed over from Ukraine into Russia and took control of Russia's southern military headquarters in Rostov-on-Don. There, Prigozhin seemed to hold hostage Russia's deputy defense minister, Yunus Bek Yevkurov, and scold him. In a video of the encounter, posted on the Telegram app, Prigozhin, chest puffed out, sits on an outdoor bench at the headquarters, between Yevkurov and the deputy head of Russian military intelligence, with some Wagner Group heavies in the background. The men begin to negotiate, but Prigozhin is triggered when Yevkurov addresses him using the informal you in Russian. The reason guys are dying, Prigozhin says, is that you're throwing them into the meat grinder. You're just senile clowns. They spar back and forth for a bit, and Prigozhin says, That's why we came here, to end the disgrace of the country we live in. We're saving Russia. All the while, Yevkurov listens carefully, exuding distaste. The day before Prigozhin's plane crashed in late August, Yevkurov turned up in Libya. He met with Prigozhin's client there, the warlord from the east, Khalifa Haftar. Yevkurov presented Haftar with a pistol as a gift and went on to prepare the ground for the day after. According to media reporting and to my own sources, Yevkurov reassured Haftar that the 2,000-plus Wagner Group operatives in Libya would remain, the money men in Dubai would stay the same, but there was going to be a reorganization at the top. The Russian military, and particularly its intelligence arm, the GRU, was going to take charge of the file, but the day-to-day operations would be handled by a different private military company. There are currently three main contenders dividing up the Wagner spoils between themselves in Africa. Patriot, Convoy, and Redoubt. Redoubt is controlled by the GRU and funded by the billionaire Gennady Timchenko, and we believe that it inherited the gig in Libya, which is the nerve center of the Wagner Group's operations in Africa. And so, in its essential forms, the Wagner Group soldiers on, albeit reclipped to Putin's leash and with a clear return address. Today, we're looking at an innovative approach to holding the individuals behind the Wagner Group accountable through the courts. Dr. Jason McHugh is an international lawyer focused on human rights, counterterrorism, rogue regimes, victim global class action litigation, and transitional justice. In 2010, he was the UK Law Society's Lawyer of the Year for his work on human rights in Africa and the UK. He is known worldwide as a pioneer of lawfare, the use of law for strategic advantage. Jason is responsible 
for orchestrating and managing some of the largest and most prominent victim-led justice and human rights actions around the world, including cases against the IRA, the real IRA, the so-called Islamic State, Gaddafi and Lukashenko. In 2021, he represented victims of the Rohingya genocide against Facebook and is currently head of Ukraine's civil society lawfare program, which is backed and supported by the government of Ukraine and which we'll be discussing today. Jason has also served as a board member or advisor to many charities and NGOs, including Oxfam, the Mo Ibrahim Foundation and Crisis Action. Jason McHugh, welcome to the Guns for Hire podcast. Thank you. You're a senior partner at the law firm McHugh Jury and Partners, and you say that our team is often the first to call in any crisis or major injustice. We take on causes and we look to right wrongs. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and about what lit that fire under you to pursue this activist form of law and to look to right wrongs? Well, thank you. Marketing, besides, I think, look, I didn't really come from a posh background. I grew up in, a, in an industrial town at a period where sort of access opportunity wasn't really there. I was advised by my school to become a fireman, oh. which would have been cool, but I wanted to move on from that town. But the point was, is access to justice, access to anything, opportunity. And growing up in those things, you see the unfairness of unemployment, north-south divides in my country, poverty and potential for money to get you into places. And I think, in fairness, that developed this sense of right and wrong, which was totally devoid of religion or cultural prejudice in myself. I didn't have that. I didn't, I wasn't brought up in that way. I wasn't brought up with nationalistic tendencies. So I look at things purely from a subjective viewpoint of what I think is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And whether I'm right or wrong in that is for someone else to judge. But what it does mean is I don't go into some of the issues that we're dealing with preconditioned ideas. Yeah, I, I read that you called what you're doing with lawfare a depoliticized route to justice. It's a completely depoliticized route, but not just in the way of practitioners being private. And I think that's really important. Part of the problem is when we have issues of the day where people are looking for solutions, they tend to be looking from a state perspective, state-led perspective, from the prism of the idea that the state or the international community is going to resolve it. Mm -hmm. That inherently is a political route. And hence, in the current conflict, you'll have Russia saying this is a westernized witch hunt or whatever. It's polarizing. When you bring private lawfare litigation, it's inherently not political. Right. It's about the merits of the issue. Yeah. So on you're a pioneer of lawfare, as, as you explain, and, and you've gone after terrorists through private civil actions, including the perpetrators of the Omar bombing in 1998 in Northern Ireland. So how do these civil cases work and how have you been able to apply them to terrorists and terrorism? Well, that was a very early case going back to a bombing of the IRA in uh, 98. And it was particularly horrific because it was just at the time of the peace process and it was done to destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So politicization here, yeah. very importantly for the greater good, meant that the state 
didn't want to prosecute terrorists at a time of the peace process. I understand that. Equally important is justice. Yeah. If there isn't justice for the people who are victims of terrorism, or for the terrorists who are victims of the state, if you want to argue it that way, then you'll never get a sustainable peace. And it's probably why now, I would always 30 years on, still not at a position of reaching a finality in the Northern Irish peace process because justice was pushed aside. I just felt particularly aggrieved when I looked at the situation of the Omar bombing, that 30 people were murdered in cold blood on a shopping day before schools went back. So everyone was there getting uniforms, etc. It was horrendous. And the men that did that still walked around that community free. Yeah. But I mean, I can't imagine the mental torture of that for those victims. But actually, the scars for society, I think we're even bigger if we allow that. So I was pretty much determined to find a solution for that. And that's what lawfare is. We came up with this, what was back then, a crazy idea of bringing four alleged terrorists and the organization mm-hmm. into a civil courtroom and proving that they did it. So we did just that. And years later, we won once we went through the process. Yeah, absolutely. And you said the IRA are used to being the victims and the underdogs. But then when you bring forward the real victims, that's quite powerful. And they're sort of shamed. And you even felt that recruitment fell. Yeah, this was at the heart of it. There was some sort of academic uh, counterterrorism thought behind this. Mm-hmm. Just uh, the inequality of the power. The Irish Republican Army always got sympathy and support, particularly from uh, America, n- not on the basis of the intricacies of the argument between them and, and the British state, but on perceptions of the inequality of power and what came out of that. When the state brings a case, it was always the imperialistic hand of the British mighty empire against innocent freedom fighters. Well, When you turn that on its head and bring the victims in, who are ordinary people, bakers, candlestick makers, and you put them in the courtroom against the terrorists, the terrorists don't know what to do from a propaganda point of view. You hit them hard. And that propaganda, as you rightly just pointed out, does have an effect on recruitment. And indeed, I think it was, I forget now because it was so long ago, but it was either somebody who was a former MI5 or 6 at the time actually made a statement that this civil action in Omar was one of the greatest threats to the real IRA um, recruitment program at the time. Wow. So that was good to hear. Yeah. Impact. So then you've taken this lawfare approach honed in these terrorism cases to pursue the Wagner Group, a mercenary outfit, um, to provide justice and reparation for Ukrainians. And the potential Russian asset recovery is something like $200 billion, I read. So ordinary Ukrainians can use that to rebuild their lives and rebuild the country. And the idea is for a global program of mass kind of Ukrainian victim-led litigations that are targeting the assets of the Russian war machine outside of Russia. It's very grand. Do you think it's going to work? Yes. Um, But let me give you some context. Please, please. That's what we're here for. Between Omar and Ukraine, there was a long journey. And I hate that journey, but it's appropriate here. Yep. And and that was working throughout Africa in peace processes, dealing with different terrorist groups and victims in large communities there, including Darfur. But it was also our focus on other 
terrorist organizations for other atrocities around the world. And moving on to rogue regimes, one of the things that hadn't been worked out was how do you tackle a rogue regime? How do you punish it? How do you get its assets to give them for compensation to their victims? And of course, it's not just victims within their own country, which is problematic for obvious reasons whilst they're in power, but those abroad. Mm. We developed a sort of series of cases around the world tackling that. If you like, then bring on the invasion of Ukraine more recently. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because of that people reached out to us and said, look, you've taken on terrorists and rogue regimes. Well, Russia's a rogue regime Mm -hmm. and Wagner and Russian military are acting like terrorists. So what can be done? Can you come up with a program? So we spent since January 22, I think we started in March, putting together a program for a lawfare program for Ukraine quite quickly. I think we realized that the real power here, because of the political nature of this invasion, was to focus it on being a civil society lawfare program rather than a Ukrainian state-led program. That meant, how could we harness the rights and power, if you like, of essentially millions and millions of Ukrainians to actually open a new front in the war against Russia, a lawfare front, another battlefront in that war and engage them so that they could help the war effort frustrate the Russian war machine. Yeah. Two, somehow get Russian state and private sector assets and give them towards Ukrainian reparations. How could we legally do that within the existing and established courts of this world? We did, we weren't looking to create something, trying to use what was there. And I think thirdly and lastly, it was that more general point of trying to ensure for Ukraine that they had a secure route, a depoliticized route for reparations. You say frustrate the Russian war machine, and that kind of raises a qualm, a little niggle, if you would, because you defended Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat against the slap case that was brought by Prigozhin, which incidentally we discussed in our last episode when Elliot was on, totally coincidentally. But isn't what you're doing, isn't lawfare also sort of weaponizing the law where it's not about the merits of the case itself about so much as about the act of bringing it? Is that abusing the law in a way? Is lawfare a bit cynical? It's a really great point, which I didn't expect this to come on to. <laughs> yes, it, it, the idea of privatization of the law and the politicization of the law and how it can be used. Well, I would address that in several ways. One is you have to start from a point of perspective that if there is a wrong, then there must be a way to write it in law. That is what rule of law demands. Mm-hmm. So if your objective is to write a wrong, then I see no ethical issue with that. And it's not an abuse of the system. You referred to Prigozhin's writ against our client Bellingcat. That was a clear abuse of process. That actually came out of discovery later on that what they were trying to do was to fetter free speech. That is not a legitimate use of the law. Certainly not a legitimate reason for my government 
to release frozen assets of Prigozhin to pay for those proceedings. It was absolutely insane. That is an abusive process, which should have been addressed and hopefully still will be addressed, actually. But looking for a legal right to pursue rights for victims of human rights abuses, terrorist abuses, war crimes, is certainly not abusive in any form. I would argue that to my dying day. Does the use of lawfare put power in the hands of the victims and the private sector and small lawyers like myself? Yes. Yes, it does. And I might add, that is part of the reason why in lockdown to date, I've been trying to put together uh, a master's course and a chair between several universities on actually studying lawfare because pretty unknown concept. And part of the reason for doing that is to create best practice. It's to look at the moral and legal theories which you've just raised behind it. And it's to explore that with students so that they're the practitioners of tomorrow. So that when they go out, whether into their government jobs or into their legal jobs or international relations for the UN, whatever they do, they come about it with a sense of ethics and purpose and best practice. I think that is needed because the legal profession without more support and force on proper ethics, it can be a danger in any society and in any area of law uh, because you end up with ambulance chasers who are chasing a buck here and there, and that does none of us any credit. But what we're talking about here is different. We're talking about a moral and a legal right, which we must find a way for it to be satisfied. Right, and this is a through way, essentially. And in that spirit, you launched a lawsuit here in the UK at the High Court of Justice against the Wagner Group on behalf of ordinary Ukrainian refugees living in the UK and seeking compensation for its atrocities in Ukraine. You estimate that you could claim £5 billion through damages from sanctioned Russian assets here in the UK. So how is the case going so far? And are you in a strong position, do you think? Let me try and address that in broken down ways. The case has actually got a greater value than five billion sterling. Potentially, it's available for 180,000 evacuees, Ukrainian evacuees that came to the UK at the outbreak of this war. If you work out an assessment of damages, and of course, civil lawyers and civil courts know how to assess compensation. I laugh my head off when I see politicians around the world estimating Ukrainian damages and reparations at 450, 500 billion, and they've almost got a smile on the face going, this is so large. It's nowhere near that. It's much, much more. Mm-hmm. Just the opposite. Right. Because right. what they're doing is looking at state infrastructure and civil society build. They're looking at very hard, tangible things at the state. What they have ignored is grassroots compensation and reparations. This is at the heart of the problem. Because ultimately, yes, it's important to get the hospital back and the schools. Of course it is. That's not going to create a sustainable peace and normalization or stability in the region. What will is grassroots reparations. Sort of homes and businesses. and uh... Yeah, if a new train line is built, who's going to go on it if there's no money? If the baker has lost his yeah. baker's shop and he can't afford a ticket on it, one of the great heartaches of my life is looking at reparation schemes around the world. If you look at the international efforts to do it, you end up with something like the Iraq Commission. Well, 
to the loss of the bread for those families got $4,600. That was it. I can't rebuild a life. It can't even buy a new car to take the kids to school. You go into the sublime when you get into the Vietnam War and Agent Orange Commission, which was giving $8 at the top end per week to victims of Agent Orange. You've got to look at this whole project and campaign in the prism of what else is available for the people in this vacuum and the realization that the international community efforts will always fall far short. There's lots of reasons for that which we can go into, but there needs to be a method which is impervious to this real politic of uh, of the world and in any peace process, which I understand. I'm not knocking it, but we equally have to find a non-politicized way for getting people real, actual reparations, compensation, which they deserve. So this program was about that. It was looking at mercenaries like Wagner and the others, oligarchs that have supported them, the sanction busters, the arms dealers, and also the Russian state. And it was trying to work out how and where we could bring actions around the world. And cumulatively, lawyers from around the world and law schools have come up with actions in about eight jurisdictions we have at the moment which totals that number between $100 and $200 billion. That's been done by independent lawyers in each jurisdiction. Coming back to the UK case, uh, that is one that my my law firm and I'm looking at, uh, personally representing those families. And yes, it does come to those figures. And I'm quite confident we can win the case against Wagner and those who support and have funded it and have utilized it over years. I, I'm not going to go into who the defendants will actually be. Here we come back to something where we started at the beginning, is, which is the issue of access to justice. The point is in this world is that ordinary people don't have access to justice. What's the point of having a human right if you can't prosecute or defend it? Yeah. You don't have the money. Surely the number one human right is access to justice, and it's missing, missing everywhere. And the Ukrainian people and the government to that extent face this issue, that they need money to be able to pursue their rights to justice. And whilst on the one hand we are brilliantly supporting their frontline war with arms and humanitarian, but we should be doing more. What we are not doing is funding their warfare. So you ask me, how is the action going in the UK? Yeah. The action is in a limbo because we have no resources whatsoever I see. from the international community. Ukrainians don't have any money for this. Everything's going to front line. So we cannot bring into that action 180,000 people and the time and cost that will take without some financial resources. So at the moment, it's token with a token number, and I'm trying to hold it until this issue is dealt with. Right. But this is the problem everywhere we find around the world, that those who deserve justice the most, everyone gives them sympathy. Everyone says, yes, they must have the right for justice. We support it. But then no one funds them to be able to bring it. The notion that you can't afford justice is really quite troubling. 
it's really troubling. It, it, it's one of the greatest injustices of post-war period. And we have not addressed it. This example is even worse when you look at the global north and global south. To me, this is the really interesting point. The majority of harm in the world today, I think it's 90 something percent from statistics, occurs to people in the global south, whether that's climate change, human rights, good governance problems, all those classic ESG problems. And who are the culprits? The majority are in the global north. Yet the courts in the global south don't have the capacity and capability to be able to give access to justice to their victims. And the courts in the global north do not open their jurisdictions up and provide access to justice for the victims in the global south. It has to change. It has to change. And it has to change because if you take the present conflict in Ukraine, if access of justice was available for victims and jurisdictions had widened their gates to allow victims to walk into them in circumstances like this, even specific circumstances such as act of aggression mm-hmm. or, or the super crimes, the super human rights, you know, war crimes and crimes, etc. We would have a solution now that is compliant with international law for taking the assets for confiscating sanctioned assets. Right. As it is, we are left in this awful lacuna where you have most of the pro-Ukrainian allied states seeing the moral desire to confiscate sanctioned assets to provide them for reparations, but equally seeing that they do not have a compliant method for doing it under international law or international norms. And while they don't surround that, trying to find solutions and seek to do it through wholesale changing of the law, which then has huge problems on sovereign immunity issues. There is an existing method for doing it, which is using the civil courts that are established around the world, which can confiscate with their judgments and assessment of damages assets of the Russian war machine. Prigozhin's response to, to the case that you brought here in the UK in the civil court was typically immature in base, where he said he'd fund the class action himself. And your retort was to quote the heroes of Snake Island, wasn't it? Yeah, I have to say I'm not one of these cool lawyers. I lost my rag. He was baiting me and he said, no one cares about Ukrainians, no yeah. one gives shit about them. And I didn't care if it was on Russian television. No one should have to listen to that nonsense. So yeah, I did come back with the quote from Snake Island. The UK recently designated the Wagner Group as a terrorist organisation, making it a criminal offence to support it or even display its logo. Undoubtedly, Wagner's crimes in Ukraine, Syria and Africa are similar to the work of terrorists, even just beginning all those years ago with the beheading of a prisoner of war in Syria. And they do murder, they rape, they torture, and they terrorize the population wherever they go. Alongside this, designations unlock a larger toolkit to go after individuals linked to the Wagner Group, including, of course, seizing property, which supports your class action aims. And you were a major proponent of designation. And I understand how this all makes sense, tactically speaking. But really, are these rapacious mercenaries terrorists in a meaningful way? Isn't terrorism fundamentally political and with a didactic purpose as, as theatre? 
that's different, no? Yes, I would agree with you. But for, they were working at the behest of the Russian Federation. And essentially, they, as you well know, were simply a tool of the Russian foreign policy. Right. And the Russian foreign policy in Africa was to prop up dictators and cre- create mayhem, chaos, using terrorism. I don't think we disagree that their actions, as you were on the line before, are terrorist actions. Mm-hmm. But was it just purely for money, which would make them not terrorists, as you will say, or, or was there a political element? Well, there was undoubtedly a political element in the case of Wagner. I think that is the reason why they were designated quite separately to other PMCs around the world, which have appalling behaviors. It is different in kind because behind every action was a political motive. So it's those state links that draw it into the ambit of the terrorism definition. It does in this case very much. If you take their work in Sudan, propping up the uh, RSF. Yeah. Yes, may have been convenient for Russia, but the secondary purpose as well was to smuggle out as much gold as possible, mm-hmm. prop up the Russian Federal Reserves during the sanctions period. So that is inherently political by nature. And how did they act for the RSF? They committed acts of terrorism in that country against the opposition. So I think it was a good call. I think it was very important. Designation is one thing you were mentioning. You were you were listening off correctly. All the um, sanctions and actions that come out of it, the criminality. But I'd ask you to look at it from another perspective as well. Think of it from where we started off talking about Omar. And what it is, is the stigmatization. And stigmatization is really important because the majority of people in the world don't want to be stigmatized by association with terrorists. And neither do they want to work for terrorists. I remember a lot of their recruits were people from the military around the world who had fought and spent their lives proudly fighting terrorism before they became a mercenary. Right. There's that element Mm -hmm. that I think is quite important. The other one, which cannot be underestimated, is the cost of doing business just went up. If you wanted to do business with Wagner, you'd think twice. It, it, It has repercussions. If you're a dictator and you were like, yeah, I can use them, they can help me do this. Well, you know for sure then you're not going shopping in London at Christmas. Yeah, Your assets over there are going to be vulnerable. I think these things are really important. Just on that cost of doing business point, interestingly, when you speak to lawyers in Libya, what they very much advocate for sanctions against anyone that deals, Libyans that deal with the Wagner Group. And one of their points is that not only does it raise awareness that you're dealing with pariah organization, which you may not be aware of in in parts of Libya, but also that it would get these businessmen to think again, and that would then affect the Wagner Group's ability to source catering, to source basic supplies from within Libya, and that it's actually a very powerful tool in disrupting their daily operations, adding them to the sanctions list and creating that, that deterrent effect around any dealings with them financially. Yeah, I don't think I was clear before. I was agreeing it's with the world splitting between these autocrats and Democrats. Yes, absolutely. The autocrats are looking for a model for asymmetric warfare against the Democrats. And the Wagner model is definitely the model on the table with its plausible deniability. Yes. And it's really important for us to not only designate it, but litigate it. 
and to take the money from it and to close it down because round the corner, every one of their North Koreans are watching. They will copycat it. And so this has a real deterrent. A couple of weeks ago, you and your law partner, Matthew Jury, were sanctioned by the Russian government and you were personally named by the Russian foreign ministry as sanctioned individuals. What does that mean for you, if anything? And I wonder, how does that make you feel? Well, the reality is it's good marketing for a human rights lawyer. <laughs> Touche. Do I have any intention now of going to Russia? Well, I can't. I guess I'll live with it. I saw a Rolling Stones concert in St. Petersburg, so I was lucky enough to have <laughs> yeah, It's not going to get better than that. So. No, it's not going to get better than that, so it's off. But does that designation of you and your law partner, does, do you think that means that they're panicking in a sense, that they're feeling yeah. the heat a little bit from this new course of action? Whatever the case is, it's pretty much undeniable now that the lawfare program for Ukraine mm -hmm. has bothered them. There's no question about it. It's proof of concept. I would go to that level on it. There's no way they'd waste the time on someone as insignificant as me or my partner mm -hmm. unless they were troubled. And they're right to be troubled because not only have they, in fact, it's quite interesting. The, I think 24, 48 hours before the Wagner plane went down, Russia announced its own lawfare campaign. We were obviously monitoring these things quite close. They realize the value for it. They know it's a, new, it's a very important battlefront in this war. And I think we were the manifestation of that on the other side. Hopefully, the international community will realize that they need to embrace this and do more to support it. It's also a realization of one other thing. When People in this area of doing conflict resolution and transitional justice post-conflict. When we were all learning this in our universities, we were looking at it within the concept of almost a World War II scenario. Germany was often the model. Really, to talk about reparations back then, you had to have an annihilation of the surrender of the country. Go in and then negotiate or dictate your terms on reparations. The globalized world now is completely different. The diversity of a state's assets around the world is vast. And that means that the concept of approaching this as a state-led front of, oh, we will negotiate with the Russians, you're not going to get anywhere. It's irrelevant in a way. What it's become is a cat and mouse game of chasing these assets around the world. And for your choice, it's not so much a guns for hire now, it's lawyers for hire almost. Yeah. But because you need to get them in these jurisdictions where the assets are, mm -hmm. working out compliant rule of law methods to bring them home for those that have a legal right to be satisfied. And on that point, what do you think that the Putin's disbanding of the Wagner Group, what do you think that means for your lawfare campaign? So can you still focus on Prigozhin's personal assets or are you going to go after the new Kremlin PMCs that are taking its place, Redut, Patriot, Convoy? Or is the underlying financial network still the same? So does it affect the case? Yeah, it, it, it does affect the case. But we have other cases as well, targeting some of the other groups and what have you. You need to look at it in the context of the specific. First of all, is this is tenant of law around the world, successor liability. I'm not so worried about who takes it over because we're looking at its liability for its acts over the last 18 months. Whether that goes into private or state hands has different repercussions, but 
certainly from our monitoring of it at the moment, it seems to have parts of it gone to different private sector and other parts, probably GRU hands are behind it. Either way, we can find routes to continuing. The other thing about Wagner is it's like Hydra. It has many heads. Those heads were not just its public face of Pregosing or its leadership of Dupkin or whatever. There was also its backers, its financiers and facilitators. And those heads are still around. And we will intend to go for them again, if we can be resourced. Our home ground on this podcast is Libya, and you led a campaign seeking redress for 150 British families who were victims of IRA attacks using Semtex supplied by Gaddafi. You were also an advisor on transitional justice to the new Libyan government in 2011. So can you tell us a little bit about your work on Libya and how you've managed to use the law to right wrongs emerging from there? Sure. Well, I was actually doing a case against the chief of staff of the IRA many years ago, and I discovered information that, that a boat had come in, the Exxon, it was called, which was a ship from Libya, which Gaddafi had stuffed full of Semtex and munitions, etc. Semtex was important. And it was the only supply of Semtex that the IRA ever had. So what it meant was that the Libyan Semtex, which Gaddafi gave to them to bring rivers of blood to the United Kingdom, and our country, was all supplied by Libya. Therefore, they were joint and several liability right. for it. I mounted a case for representatives of, gosh, loads of Semtex bombings. We tried to do as many as possible, of which there were too many to cover everyone. And we brought that case in America. That was the best jurisdiction for it at the time, for lots of reasons. And all of a sudden, this, the action got stopped. It got stayed. And the reason for that was that the American government were doing an entente, if you like, with Gaddafi. Right. And what they agreed was that the victims in those cases, uh, Gaddafi would have to give up some money, say I think it was a few billion, put it into a trust and it'd be distributed to the relevant cases, which ours was one. So we sat back and popped the champagne courts and said, good old Uncle Sam, you solved us a load of more litigation. This is great. And then it got distributed about a year later. Mm. It turned out that it was only being distributed to American citizens. We haven't been informed. And that immediately started a bit of a diplomatic lobbying push with our government going, what the hell? You can't allow the Americans to do this. And three people in our case who were American got millions. The remaining 150 got nothing. Mm. I mean, the lack of parity was, was awful. And the American clients felt awful and they shouldn't have felt awful. And it had slipped through the um, political cracks, basically, state-to-state right. -state discussions. So we thought what to do. And then the revolution happened. And it literally, two days before the revolution, a lawyer from Libya rang me up from Benghazi and he said, look, he said, the revolution's coming. I said, oh, no. Two days later was the 17th of February. It did start. And so I rang him back and I said, look, here's the deal. Can you get to whoever's leading the revolution to Benghazi? And I said, I will come over with, with a, a small group and we will help you with transitional matters to establish a government. My pro quo is you sign an agreement for 150 to have parity with the American claimants in the action, and we will take it against 
Gaddafi's sanctioned assets in London. They signed that agreement, which was called the Benghazi Agreement. And to this day, we still fight trying to get our government to release the assets with the new Libyan government's agreement to release the money, which is sat in London now, which has accumulated over three billion of interest going nowhere. Yeah. Or our victims who are getting on, some in wheelchairs now with their injuries, some who still don't have access to their homes. It, it's shoddy. It, it's really sad. And it's one which we keep on going. But God, we've tried everything, including being surrounded in Benghazi by bloody Gaddafi when he circled there. But we've tried. And these are long fights, aren't they? They're long fights. That case is probably one of the longest I've done. We've gone through so many different angles on it now. As you know better than me, it's just fraught with difficulties in that country. Mm -hmm. So many issues overlapping and other foreign interests and global and domestic issues that trying to navigate through it is it's not easy. Yeah, it's a prototype of your argument about justice being politicised. It is very much, and it's one of those. I do know the window of opportunity will arise. It always does on all these cases. Mm. When it opens that window, we're going to jump through it and the people will get something. I just hope it's not too late for them. You've demanded that YouTube removes videos promoting Wagner content. So what happened there and how did they respond? It was simple. We were, did the first steps in our case against Wagner. But even if we hadn't done that, I'd have written to YouTube anyway. I think someone's kid showed it. And uh, what it was was Wagner just doing acts of terrorism on promotional videos and mm. things. We wrote and said, look, we're representing these people in an action. You need to take this down immediately else we'll sue you. We'll sue you because you're promoting a commercial enterprise of Wagner, which are using this for recruitment, who are committing acts of terrorism. But morally, you shouldn't even have this stuff on your platform. This, what did they do? They took it down within 24 hours and that was the end of it. But the context of this, I think, is important, which is what you're getting at, which is the internet in wars and conflicts and terrorism. The internet, to me, can either be a good guy or a bad guy. People who are potential victims of the internet, in this case, Ukrainians and others in Africa or around the world because of the advertisements, if you like, of Wagner, are all getting away with it. You have to come down strong on them. And I think if there's not going to be any legislation, then we've got to bring litigation. We have to change in that way. Look, how did the tobacco industry and asbestos industry be brought to its knees? wasn't regulation or legislation in America. It was tort lawyers. They did it. It's the same for people like your Wagner's of this world and your internet giants. They don't behave. They'll be brought down by the legal community. But the legal community has to do it. Speaking of other legal measures, I heard you say in a press conference that civil campaigns can help lead to international criminal cases. Is it a case of building momentum or is it that you're establishing an evidence base that can then be taken forward in criminal courts? All of the above. Most systems, criminal systems, are reluctant to engage for lots of reasons. As I say, most of them can be political or international relations or whatever or matters of this. But once you trigger them for a private action, you embarrass them into action. Right. And that is part of lawfare's job. 
Lawfare is there's a check and balance on government and to encourage it to do the right thing. Omar action is a very good example. There'd been no prosecutions because of the process. Yeah. People got our action, prosecutions came. Justice was delivered to some extent. You know, we're in Ukraine looking at lots of issues. We're looking at the kidnapped children. Bearing in mind some of these kids have been kidnapped, detained. These are the wrong words. Let's use the right definitions. They were kidnapped yeah. since 2015. Yeah. Something needs to happen here. There needs to be rights. And I think here the Lawfare Action campaign that we're doing can highlight this issue and bring it back onto the international agenda so that it's forced to do more for those children, to repatriate them all the better. Iran drones is another area we're looking at. We have good potential actions against Iran for their use of drones. This is really important because Iran's connection to this war is almost being sidelined because it creates another diplomatic issue by throwing in another country. Mm -hmm. And on the Iranian drones, what sort of action can you bring, given that their, their international exposures, particularly in the West, are different to, say, Russian ones? Is there much that can be done? Yeah, the great advantage is that Iran are a designated sponsor of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And that means some of their assets have been frozen and actually seized. And those assets can be attached with judgments from courts through America or or Europe, to that matter. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we wanted to open this front was not to deter uh, other states from supporting Russia's illegal invasion. But it was also to look at new pots of gold. The damage to Ukraine is so large, even all the assets of the Russian state be enough to regenerate the country. Right. Probably not. Let's look at other pots. Lawfare can look at other pots. Right. Wouldn't necessarily be brought into a, a negotiated reparations scheme. So hence we were looking at to diversify our, our pickings, if you like. Yeah. There's something profound about using the law against such brutal governments and networks because not only are you accessing justice, but you're mobilizing the very rules-based order to punish those who sneer at it and basically hold two fingers up to it. And then that becomes the root of their punishment and sanctions. So it's poetic justice in uh, two sentences. It, it really is. It, it's the irony, irony of it, which you begin to enjoy. <laughs> and that's where it started off this whole thing. The idea came from when I was sat looking at the IRA when I was a younger, and I saw how they were using civil law for doing insurance claims against the British government. Right. They were using libel actions against British newspapers to silence them. That's right, yeah. And I thought, why aren't we using the civil law against them? They want to be normal and use the courts. Let's get them back with the law. And that's really at the heart of these moves. And I think in the world today, we've got to realize its power, its potential, and we have to focus on it more in this more globalized world. Jason McHugh, thank you so very much for joining us on the Guns for Hire podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. And as ever, thank you for listening. Thanks too for your feedback and reflections over social media. I love to hear from you. I'll be back in November with that episode I told you about a while ago. What's Charlie Sheen got to do with it? Goodbye.